Welcome to episode 28 of the Redeemed Hearts podcast, where we encourage you to allow God to transform you mentally, emotionally, and relationally by living from your redeemed heart. Your hosts, Worley and Danina Kennedy, are licensed professional counselors and are the founders of Redeemed Hearts Ministries. As we get ready for Good Friday and Easter this month, uh, these episodes will focus on just that, Christ's death and resurrection and what it ultimately means for us. This week's episode is one of Worley's sermons entitled The Passionate Path of Christ's Suffering. And we'll follow it up next week with another of Worley's sermons on the resurrection. Thanks again for tuning in and listening today. Here's Worley. Forgive them. It is finished. The story of the passion of Christ is one of suffering and how Jesus suffered. How this man who surely was the son of God suffered and he suffered and he suffered so much that he died. He died, and we all know, don't we, that he died in our place on that cross. It wasn't just Barabbas who deserved to die as an evildoer or a troublesome meddler, a thief, a murderer. We too have murdered with our anger, and sin in our hearts in some way against God by demanding our own way in some way. So Jesus suffered and died. And that is why the crucifixion is called the passion of the Christ. And today begins what is called the Passion Week of Christ as we each day move toward remembering the crucifixion, which occurred on Friday. Today is Palm Sunday. The palm branches, according to royal tradition, were laid in front of Jesus by the people as he entered Jerusalem that one last time in hope that he might assume rule of the nation of Israel. The branches symbolized a path for the victor, a path to victory, a path to triumph. And the people shouted to Jesus as he followed their path, Hosanna, which meant save us now. It was a demand, really. And these long oppressed people joined one another in triumphant chorus. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. Deliverance from their immediate suffering at the hands of the Roman oppressors was what they thought they needed. Happiness in life is what they longed to see. So Jesus entered the city in what they hoped would be their triumph their victory. Most of them that day had 
either seen Jesus or heard of Jesus. He was a man like no other. He healed the sick. He controlled the demons. There was even one report that he had calmed a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee. If there was anyone who could answer their cry of Hosanna, it was Jesus. If there was anyone who could save them now, it was Jesus. It was their demand. Follow the path we set before you, Jesus. Remove our oppression. Remove our suffering. Remove it now. It has been a demand of men through all ages to God, most often to false gods, gods of men's own making that are really not gods at all. But the demand is the same, save us now. Deliver us now in the way that we think we should be delivered. Be triumphant, oh God. Be triumphant, Jesus, over our suffering. Do it our way. Do it now. Is this your cry? Save me now, Jesus, from my own pain and suffering. Is this my cry? Deliver me now from a life of hardship. We all suffer in various ways. We all have trials of various kinds. But in our suffering, we must learn from the passion of the Christ that Jesus' purpose for us has never been to simply save us now from the pain and hardship, perhaps oppression that we encounter. The passion of the Christ teaches us that Jesus' answer to our cries is not to provide immediate relief from our pain and suffering. His answer on Palm Sunday to the desperate masses was to choose to suffer himself so that through his suffering, he might give life to all he would die for. The word passion comes from the Latin word passio. It means to suffer. It speaks of a willingness to be wounded for the sake of another, which is what Jesus did. According to what Mike read in Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. As the clip that we viewed portrayed a moment ago, the passion of Jesus really began to be initiated on a Thursday. It was at the evening of the Last Supper where Jesus dismissed Judas to betray him and where Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet and he told them he would wash all of them. And as they ate the Passover meal, he told them his body would be broken very soon and his blood would be shed for their sins as a new covenant for their forgiveness between him and them. And then he left with them very late into the early hours of Friday morning. It was then that Jesus 
went into a prayer-filled exchange with the Father about proceeding down his road of passion, his road of suffering. His prayer was in the garden called Gethsemane, and Peter and James and John went further into the trees than the others did, so Jesus could have them near him during this very difficult hour. Jesus urged them to pray so that they might not fall to the inevitable temptations that always accompany suffering. He left them to do this as he went just a stone's throw away, as Luke recorded, to cry out to the Father. And those three, clearly exhausted from the demands of their life, and so often it is in suffering, leave themselves wide open for the temptations and failures that would overwhelm them in the hours ahead. They slept, but Jesus wept, agonizing deeply over the eternal weight of God's wrath that was to be his in less than half a day. Mark describes it in this way. From Mark 14, verses 33 to 42, and he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, he said, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Just a note, a call to all of us in our suffering as the temptations are everywhere. We're to pray. We're to pray so that we may not give in to the temptations. And again, he went away and he prayed saying the same words. Remove this cup, not what I will, but what you will. And he came back and he found their sleeping because their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Ride, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And his betrayer was at hand, Judas, the compromising unbeliever who was counted among the 12, was never really a genuine follower of Jesus. He was like so many in our day who liked the idea of a savior from the immediate problems of life, from the immediate situations that we're faced with, but he, he, that remain hard-hearted and unconverted and unrepentant of self-centeredness and proud, who really despise Jesus for not saving now 
and want simply to go their own way. Every one of us in our in suffering encounters the fact that our lives have come and have to come to the realization in suffering that we love Jesus in spite of our suffering and we are willing to trust him and wait for him even when he doesn't remove it from us in our way or in our time. Judas had only followed Jesus to get from Jesus what he wanted And when he could see that Jesus was not going to do it his way, he turned his back on God forever. You're not a Judas, are you? You love Jesus in his way, don't you? Even though his path is the passionate path of suffering. The events that followed the betrayal were awful. The disciples tried to put up a fight as Jesus was sworn by the religious leader's private guards. Peter even cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. But Jesus, in complete control of all the events, told them it was not to be their way. And immediately he healed the young slave's ears and he, and he said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? What's your cup? So Jesus let them take him, saying to them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And all the disciples fled, including Peter, who swore he would never deny Jesus, and yet he did so three times before the rooster crowed twice at the dawning of the new day. Several trials immediately commenced before the Jews and the religious leaders, before Governor Pilate, before Governor Herod, then back to Pilate. Jesus was lied about, cussed to, spit upon, belittled, mocked, laughed at, pushed, beaten, stripped of his clothes, scorned. He was the son of God, and yet they blaspheme him again and again. And what had he done? And Pilate's own words said, this man has done nothing. I find no guilt in him. We might say in our own suffering, I've done nothing. I'm not deserving of this. Why am I treated this way? If this describes you, you will find an understanding friend in Jesus. He knows. He has been there. He never did anything to warrant any suffering in the judgment that he was having to endure. So we might have done nothing to warn our suffering. But unlike Jesus, there are also many times that we do. Sometimes we sin against others with our thoughts or our words or our actions. And we do the very things we ought not to do. We 
do the things that we wish we wouldn't do. And we know we're deserving of the consequences that our sins bring. We know we deserve the judgment of God. And if this describes you, you will find a friend in Jesus as well. That is, if you trust him, that is, if you give your way up to him, to his way, to his washing, not just your feet, but your whole body. The events that occurred next on this awful Friday of Passion Week are for you. They're for me. They're for those of us who do trust him. It was for us that he said, not my will, Father, but your will be done. It was for us that he said to Peter, stop fighting. Stop fighting against what the Father has ordained. Shall I not drink the cup that I've been given? It was for us that he remained silent among his accusers and for us that he did not call down legions of angels that he could have to deliver him from this hour. It was for us that he did not say to Pilate, enough of this. I'm a king and my kingdom is so much greater than yours. I sentence you to death. I don't need this. I don't need this suffering. I don't need this misery. He didn't do that. But instead, he said it was for this purpose. I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world. So what happened next is that Pilate did sentence Jesus to death and beat him some more and ordered the executioners to crucify him. Mark in chapter 15, beginning in verse 22, describes the first three hours of the crucifixion in this way. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He didn't want to deaden the effect of the crucifixion. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. This all started at 9 a.m. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. They mocked him in being the center, the king of, if you will, common criminals. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. 
And the chief priests, the religious leaders, the scribes, they mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And that went on for the first three hours from nine to noon. Jesus suffering on the cross. But this was not the worst of it. This was not the part he dreaded the most. Jesus knew as man did not know, and many to this day still don't know, that it was because of God's unhappiness with every man's sin. That was the ultimate purpose for which Jesus would die. God's holiness must be satisfied. God's justice must be met. The wrong must be forgiven, must be made right. And no sinful man could meet it, not in an eternity of years. Pity those who think they can satisfy God's justice on their own. No man is righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. There had to be someone who could bear God's wrath. There had to be someone without spot, without blemish, a lamb, without sin, who could take on the sins of men for all time and endure God's judgment for all who would believe. So in the next three hours, beginning at noon, God showed up in judgment and Jesus endured his wrath. Luke in 23, 44 and 45, he mentions it this way. He says, now it was about the sixth hour. It was noon in that time. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And watch this, while the sun's light failed. Now I've read this before from John MacArthur about showing up that day to judge Jesus. I'm going to read part of this again. It bears repeating. Picture the scene, if you will. He's gone through three hours, brutal suffering. But not suffering that was unlike what other kinds of men had gone through. And now it's noon. It's bright. And I begin to read what MacArthur says. It's midday, high noon, the sun at its apex in the middle of the sky, blazing brightness, instantaneously becomes pitch blackness. The sun goes out. There's no moon. There's no stars. Pitch black. No electricity. Only the little oil lamps with a floating wick. And nobody would have had those at the middle of the day. What caused this blackness? The people of Israel would have known from God showing up at Sinai, where he showed up in darkness, and at his covenant with Abraham, where he showed up in darkness, and the earth trembled, and the mountains shook, 
that the presence of God could be associated with supernatural, inexplicable darkness, thick darkness, so dark you could feel it. And we're not talking about a few clouds rolling in front of the sun. We're talking about pitch black darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And they would have known that this darkness side of God was always associated with judgment. As one passage in Joel 2.10 says, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness, the day of the Lord, which was a day of judgment, is indeed great and very awesome. Who can endure it? The Jews knew supernatural darkness was divine judgment. Not only was it associated with divine presence. They knew God was present on the mountain at Sinai. It wasn't only just God's presence, but it was God's presence in judgment. MacArthur goes on to say, on that day, Calvary, God arrived, not in light, but in darkness. And he showed up to unleash judgment, not in the eschatological sense in the future, there will be a future judgment, but on this day against the ungodly in the saving sense against the godly one. What's really going on at Calvary is beyond the physical suffering. It's beyond the sacrifice of Christ. What's happening here is divine wrath is being poured out in its final form. Eternal wrath is about to be released, and the darkness is everywhere. He goes on and says, you could say it another way. God brought hell to Jerusalem that day. In Matthew 8, verse 12, Jesus called hell outer darkness, the ultimate black hole where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth in the eternal unrelieved blackness. It is the darkness of God's judgment presence. So from noon to three, hell came to Jerusalem that day. God showed up in wrath. And who should have he been pouring his wrath out on? Not on the Romans. He didn't show up and pour it out on the Romans who were putting him on the cross with not much care. He didn't do it on the Jews that were mocking him, the religious leaders. It wasn't on the people. It was wrath on the Son. Hell came there. Hell where God punishes people forever. And in those three hours, he gives his son eternal hell on behalf of all who would ever believe. This is the cup that Jesus anticipated in Gethsemane with such revulsion that he said, if there's any other way, he could avoid it. During these three hours, there was no sneering from the crowd. There's no scorning. There's no mocking, there's no blasphemy, there's no taunting, there's nothing recorded that anyone said anything. Utter darkness. Even Jesus didn't speak during those three hours. Jesus suffered the eternal hell for all who would believe. 
So the darkness is not the absence of God. It is the opposite. It is the presence of God in full judgment, vengeance, and fury, infinite wrath moved by infinite righteousness releases infinite punishment on the infinite son who can absorb an eternal hell for all who would ever believe in three hours. How could he do that? Because he was the eternal son of God. It is here that he bears in his own body our sins. It is here that he who knew no sin is made sin for us who believe. It is here that he is wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It is here that he is made a curse for us. These are the three hours of the wrath of God on him. MacArthur finishes by saying it's stunning to think about it. All the people will spend, who will spend forever in hell will spend forever there because they will never be able to pay for their sins. And yet Jesus in three hours could pay in full for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe. How? Because an infinite amount of wrath can only be absorbed by an infinite person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Quite a scene. Luke finishes that scene at the end of God's judgment with these words in Luke 23. Begins in verse 45. He says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He cried out, It is finished. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Certainly this man was the Son of God. And then note this, all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breast. The temple, torn in two from the top to the bottom, couldn't have been from the bottom to the top. I mean, it could have been, but it wasn't. Only God could tear the massive temple curtain from the top to the bottom. And that stood for the separation between sinful man and the holy God was no longer needed because Jesus became the curtain Jesus became the way to God. Jesus, through his own suffering, had brought salvation, the path to the peace that all suffering souls long to know. The answer to suffering is Jesus. His work complete, finished, and he purchased and he secured forever the futures of all who give their lives to him and to his path. And so great was that scene that the soldier in charge proclaimed Jesus. He was the Son of God, the Savior. And so fearful was this judgment on Jesus. So penetrating was the punishment for our sins that those present at the crucifixion and perhaps Barabbas 
It was a skit portrayed. Perhaps Barabbas watched. So fearful was the judgment that those who were paralyzed as witnesses in the darkness returned home, beating their breasts. And surely it was these who saw that and witnessed that, that some two months later would repent of their sins when they realized Jesus died for them, as recorded in Luke, by Luke in Acts 2.41, some 3,000 quickly repented. So the week of the Passion of the Christ started with a demand and ended with a death. The pathway of suffering for the believer is ever marked. Our pathway is ever marked by the events of that week leading up to and encompassing those six hours on the cross. If you suffer, don't forget the cross. In your suffering now, don't forget the passion of the Christ. In our suffering, we may start out with the demand of God to release it, but it should always end with a death, our death. Our will submitted to his will, his way, that his will might be done. And may I encourage us as we close to embrace the way of Jesus, embrace the road of passion, the passion of the Christ, the road of suffering, which is ours, who belong to him. When we suffer, we all want to blame someone or something. And the correct response to the question of why we suffer as we do, our correct response will for us to say, well, we're all responsible for this mess. We're all responsible. Why are we so surprised? God created a world for us to know and experience him in perfect peace and happiness and harmony. But in our fallen sinfulness, we're like Adam and Eve. We've tried to go it alone. We will demand our own way. And in the process, we've collectively made a mess of things. We've sinned against others. We've been sinned against by others. We have forsaken God, and we live and breathe in a world which continues to live without him. So our suffering today, which is ordained by God, has also been brought on by us. So we cry out to God, Hosanna, save us now. Save us from our suffering. Save us from our oppressors. Save us from ourselves. And that is exactly what he has done. That's exactly what he has done, not by removing the suffering now, at least not yet, but he did that by entering the suffering on our behalf. Jesus paved the road to suffering that we might follow him through it in our own suffering. What's your suffering? Illness? 
the loss of someone close to you, the effects of your sin, the effects of someone else's sin, the pressures and demands of living in a fallen world. Jesus embraced our broken plight so that he might endure the wrath of God so that he might bring us back into the peaceful presence of God. And so God wants us believers who are suffering to continue in your suffering, to see it as the path of Jesus, to see it as our path, that we may stay close to him, that we might find comfort in him, that we might let him be our guide to remain under and walk with him through it. 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And one more, Romans 8, 15 through 17, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Daddy, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, at Faith Bible Church, in our suffering, we pray, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from us, yet not what we will. Your will be done. Let me pray for us. We'll sing a closing song and be dismissed. Father in heaven, we... Listen to a story that is familiar, but amazingly continues to have power and speak to our hearts. Lord Jesus, we confess how quickly we resist you in our suffering. We might fall asleep. We might be overwhelmed with temptation. And yet in all the while, you have made it possible for us to be with you, to be with the Father, to cry out to the Father, to tell him the truth about our sin, to tell him the truth about our fears, to tell them the truth about our suffering, to ask even that it might be removed, but to more importantly rest in, confidently rest in your will being done. Lord, I pray that as we go through this week, we might be conscious, constantly aware 
of the path that you chose on behalf of us. And Lord, we know today we didn't tell the whole story. We didn't tell the story about how you rose again and overcame sin and death and live. And we look forward to that for next Sunday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us today on the Redeemed Hearts podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are looking for more content from Worley and Danina, we encourage you to visit redeemedheartsministries.com. Don't forget to join us next week as we bring you another one of Worley's sermons on the resurrection. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and share this episode on social media. Please feel free to reach out and contact us through the website as well. We hope you have a happy Easter. God bless.